Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, the intrepid trio of Jennifer Bray, Pat Leahy and Harry McGee from our politics team. And it is back to school time, but it's also back to the dull time. The dull reconvenes early today. Um, it's been recalled because of various events which have taken place over the last couple of weeks. Harry, you have a look at what's upcoming uh, in today's newspaper. Yeah, Hugh, it wasn't meant to return until the 18th of September, which is another fortnight away. But unfortunately uh, for the body politic, a small event happened during August that kind of put everything into disarray, now called Golfgate, inevitably. There's a gate will append every controversy in politics from here to evermore. But the fallout from it essentially spooked the government into recalling the Dáil early to deal with the consequences of that. And I'm not trying to dismiss the consequences because they were very serious indeed. We had a, a second Minister for Agriculture falling on his pitchfork in quick succession and relatively quickly followed up by the biggest scalp. And I'm not trying to make it into a game or to diminish the importance, but it took a week uh, before Phil Hogan actually resigned after the controversy uh, first erupted. But from the weekend, at least, the writing was on the wall. Anyone of us who has seen controversies like this uh, pan out before knew that Phil Hogan's goose was cooked, to put it mildly. And the controversy continues. Uh, the Oireachtas Golf Society is probably no more. There is a Supreme Court judge, a newly appointed uh, Supreme Court judge, facing an inquiry at the moment in relation to his attendance of that. And it's a little bit reminiscent, uh, though, of a very different scale of the controversy surrounding the appointment of Harry Whelehan as president of the High Court back in the uh, 1990s. So that's the reason and the uh, pretext for recalling the Doyle this week. Uh, there's very little on the agenda today. It's a half day. Other uh, than that, there is the uh, new Criminal Justice Amendment Act, which gives Gordy fairly uh, wide sweeping uh, powers of enforcement. Jack Horgan Jones and Jennifer are reporting on that uh, this morning. And that's going to be debated in the Doyle this afternoon. I think it'll be one of the COVID pieces of COVID legislation. Uh, that won't uh, go through easily. I think there are concerns that have been raised by civil liberties groups and by the opposition in relation to this piece of legislation. For its part, the Gordy argued that they they detected 165 breaches of COVID guidelines in pubs serving food uh, during the course of the past few months, but were unable to do anything to deal with it. So that's the second big piece of uh, business. And then there's a third piece, which is necessitated by Golfgate, so-called. It's the appointment of the new Minister for Agriculture. And I'd be very surprised indeed if it's not uh, Charlie McConnell, who was Fianna Fáil spokesman uh, on agriculture, but didn't make the senior ministerial grade in the first round. I think a junior minister 
will also be announced today to replace him or whoever uh, Micheál Martin chooses to be Minister for Agriculture. And also there's a COVID committee meeting today as well, uh, which is looking at the uh, issue of education. Uh, the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, I think will appear before it uh, to discuss the various issues in relation to the Leaving Cert, to the return to primary school, etc., etc. So, I mean, Jen, there's quite a lot on the agenda there. I mean, the legislation is quite significant. I think the opposition's main concern expressed about it has been that it's been lashed together a bit too quickly, so perhaps hasn't been run through the various kind of sanity checks that that these things need. And there was a bit of toing and froing as it was being put together, particularly around the question of parties in private residences, so-called house parties, and, you know, what powers, if any, the guards should have to step in on those, and the government rode back and all that. But it's a, it's, it's a pretty significant thing. It is pretty significant and I think um, you're right to, to single out the issue of the House parties because what had happened was that a memo was prepared for Cabinet which would have effectively made it an offence to have any more than six people in your house um, and what we reported it on Friday morning and I think then what happened was there was a lot of public reaction to it, there was a lot of stakeholder reaction to it talking about how it was probably unconstitutional and you know there's a whole range of uh, constitutional issues in relation to going into somebody's home. So that played out on Friday morning and I think before the cabinet meeting or just as it started, it was taken, oh, the, it was reworded basically and there was uh, what I'm told is a robust conversation about it having even gone to cabinet in the first place given that it probably is unconstitutional. Um, and then we heard over the weekend that the new plan was um, to crack down on college parties. So it seemed to be changing actually quite a lot but the, in terms of the legislation itself, so this is legislation that will give Gardaí the powers to go in and close a pub in the first instance for a day where there are second and third breaches for seven days and for 30 days. And there's a lot of other details in the legislation. For example, um, a premises, a license holder will have to affix a notice to the outside of, in a conspicuous place, to the outside of the premises stating uh, the closure order, how long it's for and the details so that everybody could see it. Obviously, that would be a deterrent and those who don't put up um, such a notice will be fined. There's obviously um, other sections of the legislation which stated that if you attempted to prevent a guard from coming in to, um, I suppose, inspect the premises, that there would also be um, a fine and potential jail sentence for that. So there's a, there's a number of different elements to the legislation. It is quite, some people have said it's quite draconian. It's definitely wide reaching. And there were concerns last Friday, especially amongst opposition politicians, that this was going to be rushed through the dull, that mistakes were going to be made and that it was going to end up being an embarrassment that politicians would be left red faced, particularly the opposition politicians. So what they did was they had a meeting of the business committee and they discussed how to get ahead of this. So they asked the department for a copy of the draft legislation that was sent out on Friday night. Now, there were big gaps in it, but they got the gist of it and the, the vast majority of it was there. So they had an opportunity to examine it effectively and to see if there was anything maybe that the government hadn't spotted or things that could cause problems down the line. So to a certain degree, a lot of the, I was speaking to people over the weekend, opposition leaders who said that they were by and large quite happy with it. Maybe there were one or two things, but they felt that their worries were um, addressed, I suppose, by by having sight of it. So what happens now is that it goes before the doll today. The government were hoping that it would actually get through quite quickly. Um, but I do think that there will be um, strong exchanges on it. And like, let's not forget that the last sitting of the of the doll was extremely acrimonious. Um, it was vitriolic, in fact, and it was it, it had to be suspended a number of times. And I think a lot of frustration and a lot of anger has been building up over the summer and um, the short summer, should I say. Um, we had multiple calls for the doll to be recalled um, in the first instance because of schools 
people were very worried about what was happening in the UK and what was happening in Scotland um, in terms of their uh, uh, exam results. And then, of course, Golfgate, like Harry mentioned, um, came to the fore. And I think we'll, we'll see a flavour of all of that today. But th- there's a lot bubbling away. I'll just put it that way. And just a quick follow up on that. When you say there was a robust exchange of views at cabinet level, that the legislation perhaps wasn't ready to be brought to that level. I mean, that I picked up my ears at the at hearing that because there was a similar brouhaha, obviously, a couple of weeks ago between Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin about um, about uh, new regulations in relation to COVID being brought to cabinet and not going through the, the full kind of subcommittee process first. Is this a similar thing? Uh, sort of. I mean, this is different in that the argument was over the substance of a proposal that was brought to cabinet. Now, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to people on the Fianna Fáil side, they'll tell you that the previous week they'd actually been given sanction to go ahead and introduce these penalties for for house parties. Or And by the way, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who will give out when they hear me saying house parties because it's not always a party. It could be a brunch, a gathering, a birthday. And that's what I mean. I'm just using that phrase. Um, so if you talk to the Fianna Fáilers, they'll say they were given permission by the government at large the previous week to go ahead and do this. If you talk to the Fine Gaelers, they'll say that that's not what was intended and that they were, to put it as one person said to me, just a bit gobsmacked that something could be brought to cabinet that was so clearly unconstitutional. Um, and they were kind of looking at the memo and reading it and kind of holding it back and going, what's this? So um depends on who you talk to. But it, there, there is still, like, we always knew that there would be tensions between the Fianna Fáil and, and Fine Gael side. That's playing out now. It hasn't been anything overly serious, bar that comment from, from Leo Varadkar about if this is the way we're doing business, we won't be doing business for very long. That was a worrying comment. But other than that, it's all the usual tensions that you'd expect. But I do think that there's a there's another issue in terms of how the parties are, are the interplay and it's the communication between their departments. And to me, it's really bad. It's not good. They're not talking to each other. They're not listening to what the other is saying. So when you ask one department or advisor or whoever what's happening, they'll tell you something different perhaps to a different uh, department. And that's really not okay in a, in a COVID emergency. Pat, we talked, um, I think the last time we talked about this subject, we talked about the government not being all on the same track and the kind of the the interplay, as Jen says, between the different departments not being what it needed to be and perhaps the need for some kind of reset. Um, is there any sign of that happening or are these problems still there just as they were the last time we talked about them? I think those problems are still there and we've seen them in recent days. Let me go back momentarily to just the legislation that you discussed uh, er- earlier. I'm a sceptic on this. Legislation to give extra powers to the Guardi is almost always, how do I put it, politically performative. Um, it usually happens around uh, road traffic issues with tweaks to speed limits and enforcement powers and, uh, and uh, drink driving legislation. But it almost always makes very little difference. Its purpose is not so much to change the law, although it, it, it does that, but its, its purpose is to show politicians are doing something in relation uh, or in response to external circumstances and public concern. Um, it, it, it brings to mind uh, the old politician's syllogism. Uh, we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I haven't heard any serious suggestions that COVID enforcement is being hampered by a lack of powers for uh, the Guardi. I certainly don't think that the Guardi um, are, are saying that with uh, with any 
with any volume uh, or commitment. Um, to go to your, your 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 larger question about the um, about the sort of lack of cooperation at the highest level of government between the parties, the lack of common purpose, uh, the lack of a shared agenda, the, the lack of a sense that this government is acting as a unit. Uh, I think we've seen that again in recent days with regard to the replacement of Phil Hogan. I know we'll come to talk about that in a few minutes, but, um, you know, Phil Hogan resigned last Thursday night. It's now Wednesday. They've been talking in government since Friday, uh, presumably, about uh, a replacement and they still haven't managed uh, to name one. Suggestions that I heard last night and indeed early this morning uh, about Fianna Fáil, uh, Fianna Fáil sources saying, look, this is a Fianna Gael appointment. They just need to pick the names and we can go ahead with this. Um, Fianna Gael sources saying that, um, uh, you know, Fianna Fáil are opposed to some of the uh, the Fianna Gael, uh, the Fianna Gael nominees. Fianna Gael want to send one, uh, want to send one nominee. Fianna Fáil wants to send two. All this sort of stuff swirling about. And it's swirling about because, A, the government hasn't... Uh, got on with its business and made a decision and uh, and and two because they haven't sufficiently explained the process that's going on behind uh, the scenes so you know if there is an overriding challenge aside altogether from the details of the return to school and the leaving cert uh, results which are due next week i think the challenge for the government as this all term restarts is to discover that sort of common purpose and implemented across government and demonstrated to the public. And Harry, all this happens against the backdrop of we're speaking on Wednesday, yesterday and Tuesday. We had the highest um, number of positive COVID tests since since really since May, which is really a pretty very serious, you know, albeit there are fewer hospital admissions and there have been little or no fatalities over the last over the last two weeks or so. So it's against the the backdrop of whether you call it a spike or a surge, it's certainly a resurgence of COVID. Um, now, that might have been expected to some extent, and Ireland is not alone in that. But Ireland now, as Paul Cullen pointed out in the Irish Times yesterday, um, whereas it was performing well in relation to most other European countries a couple of months ago, it's now slipped right down the league table or up the league table, depending which way you want to put it. Yeah, we're actually even below the Swedes at the moment. Uh, a few weeks ago, we we got worse than the, the Brits and that was bad enough. Now we're worse than the Swedes who have been the, the whipping boys or the whipping people of Europe in relation to COVID-19 because of the controversial approach they adopted where, where there wasn't a, a full lockdown. I think it's temporary. But I mean, one day's figures does not really make a pattern. So uh, while the figures were uh, high yesterday, they could come right down. We've seen the figures vary from day to day, even though when they start looking at the longer term patterns, there's it's obvious uh, that the figures have been rising and rising alarmingly at some instances when you look at it from the prism of a fortnightly perspective. And in terms of politics, that makes it different. I think that the, the government thought that once the government had been formed in June, that COVID was relatively under control for the moment and they would have some time and space uh, to start looking at the very ambitious list of legislation that they have laid out for themselves uh, in the autumn and in the winter. 
as well as all the other hundreds of items on the programme for government to get it moving. And of course, COVID would be the immediate priority. Uh, there was still PUP. Uh, there's also the wage supplement to those who are working for companies that have been struggling since COVID uh, started. And there's also the difficulty of trying to retrain people, get people back to work, uh, get sectors which have been moribund back into operation. There was all that. But the fact that uh, the numbers have swelled in recent weeks, Hugh, uh, would suggest to me at least that other things have had to be put onto the back burner, as it were, uh, as they tackle the immediate crisis. And it, it hasn't been helped, as Pat was pointing out there, by the lack of coherence and, to be quite frank, the bungling by government of so many issues since coming together in, in June. They're, they're two thirds through their first 100 days. And I, I, I don't think I'd be exaggerated by saying it's probably uh, the worst first 100 days we have seen uh, from an Irish government uh, for quite a, a long time. It's definitely the worst first 66 days. Absolutely, Pat. So uh, I, I don't have too much hope for the remaining 34 days. Uh, they really have just uh, taken uh, their foot out of their mouth long enough uh, just to put the other foot into it. It's just been one mishap after uh, another uh, and I think the, the, one of the difficulties, of course, uh, aside, besides everything else, is the composition of the government. It's a very unusual composition. In the past, we've had one large party, one small or a number of smaller parties and perhaps independence. But we knew uh, which uh, party was cracking the whip. It's kind of hard to know which party really is cracking the whip in this government. Fianna Fáil are nominally the largest party, but they, they seem to be the party at this moment uh, which is suffering uh, the most. And Fine Gael, uh, seems to have no difficulty in asserting its authority or its uh, identity, uh, whereas the other two parties seem to be struggling very badly in doing that. And I think Micheál Martin has um, really uh, struggled uh, to find a, a voice as uh, Taoiseach. He's gone through all the things. He's doing the videos, reassuring people about COVID. He's making the speeches uh, with uh, with bits of, of the uh, requisite Heaney or Yates kind of peppered uh, in, but it's just not working for him at, at the moment. He just seems to be trying to manage a, a situation and there doesn't seem to be an impression so far that he is the person that is going to lead uh, the country out of this particular impasse. I mean, to what extent, Jen, is this purely a communications problem? And you've been very critical of the communication strategies of the kind of of the key government departments, I think rightly so. But we can kind of fall into the trap of just turning this into a kind of media analysis of 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 public performance. But it seems to me that it reflects a, a broader, deeper and probably much more serious malaise. Again, Paul in his piece yesterday points at the the um the slow um uh, reaction of the state to the outbreaks in meatpacking plants in July uh, or meat processing plants and the fact that that then allowed um covid to spread into the community and that they should have acted faster questions remain about the speed and efficacy of our t- of our of our testing and particularly our tracing systems and to me all of that is very opaque and that what I'm afraid of, I suppose, is that that's more than just a messaging problem. That's a fact that things are not being done as well as they could or should be. Yeah, I, th- I think everything you say there is completely accurate. I think you hit the nail on the head when you use the word malaise because I think people are exhausted, actually, to be quite honest with you. And it shows. Um, it shows publicly. And for us as journalists dealing with people privately, it definitely shows privately. Um, I do think that's feeding into a lot of 
the problems that we have at the moment. There just isn't a sense of energy right now behind, you know, various different messaging, behind various different, I suppose, strategies or policies. Um, and that's probably because a lot of people have been working all year, all through the pandemic, all through the summer. Um, I know politicians who went to go take a couple of days away and had to come back on the same day. And just on a human level, like you'd have to appreciate that people are exhausted at the same time. Um, you know, they, they're paid to do this job. Uh, we're, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People need direction now more than ever before. So you you could say that we sometimes you could veer into the territory of perhaps media analysing it. But that kind of maybe misses the point a bit, because if they can't get the message out to the media about what's happening, if they can't answer simple questions, we can only work with what we've got. And that in turn only feeds into a confused message that goes out to, to the public. And, you know, it's frustrating for us to deal with when you're trying to get an answer to something which is actually quite simple and you're being sent from department to department. And I've never experienced that before on this scale. I haven't. And um, it, it just really doesn't help. Um, and I, I think as well what you said there about the issues at play, they are far bigger. So you mentioned Paul's piece. Uh, he talked about how we, you know, we don't have a handle on our testing system, that perhaps it was underutilized over the summer, that instead of scaling it up, we scaled it down. Uh, and now we're paying the price for that. Now the cases are rising. I think he talked a bit about community transmission. So in a letter that was sent from the acting chief medical officer to Stephen Donnelly on Monday, just gone, uh, when he was lifting the Kildare restrictions, he talked about how community transmission nationally in Ireland is at 36%. I think that'd be a far bigger worry than the spike in the cases that we saw yesterday. It's the level of unknown uh, transmission where you, where you just don't know where it came from. Uh, and, and that is something that I think will become a bigger issue. And if there's anything going to put us back into a national lockdown, if indeed that ever does happen again, you can imagine that that will be it. Um, so there's there's a there's a whole range of different issues which we haven't really had any clarity on. Like we don't know where our rapid testing uh, plan is at, or even if we have a rapid testing plan, we don't know what our long-term plan is to deal with COVID, which we were promised multiple times. It's this framework for living alongside COVID. We don't have that yet either. Um, we know that there's serial testing being rolled out across uh, meat processing plants and direct provision centres, but there isn't really any clarity on how we know it's once a week, but what are the figures from that? What other measures are being taken? What measures are being taken in terms of the, I suppose, the lifestyle and the working conditions that people are existing under? Because until you address that, really, you can test away. But if you have people still presenting for work and working, even if they're sick, because they're not going to get their sick pay, that issue is not going to go away. So there's kind of acknowledgement. I think Stephen Donnelly did an interview in the 6-1 and he said one of the big lessons that we learned from this crisis was about those conditions. But there's no real plan to say, OK, here's how we're going to address that. And that's a, that's a, uh, that sticks out like a sore thumb. So we've got issues with the testing and tracing. We've got issues with rapid testing, the long term plan, um, like the, the vulnerable areas we talk about uh, there. And there's a whole load of other things. You could kind of talk about it all day, really. And I think as we come into the winter and we know and we know there'll be a flu season, hopefully the flu season will be less because people are indoors more and not socialising more, but it'll still be there. Um, and we know that in the briefing document given to Stephen Donnelly, it warned that there could be a shortfall of 4,700 beds out of a baseline of 11,000 beds. And so we have a huge capacity issue coming at us down the tracks this winter. So we need a winter plan. So that's another thing that's needed. So the, the task facing this government to keep the, the, the show on the road and to keep, look, to keep Irish citizens as safe as possible is absolutely gigantic. And so they need to sort out the basics before we get into that. And the basics 
is communication, to my mind, before you even get into. Because if you can't communicate what you're doing, it's it's a bad place to be. Pat, how right am I to be concerned about just feeling that the hand has been taken off the tiller in some way over the last couple of months? And I and and this is probably a criticism of the media as well as of the political process and and the Oireachtas. I don't have a I don't have a clear picture of what the plan is with testing and tracing to make it better than it was in the past and where it needs to be and when it's going to, when it's going to be at that place when it needs to be. Fintan O'Toole was writing this week making a comparison between um, Copenhagen Airport and Dublin Airport, the difference that a traveller experiences when they arrive in each of those airports in Copenhagen. In Copenhagen, you're, you're offered a free uh, COVID test in the car park um, as you're leaving the airport and you get the result, I think, within a matter of hours. In Dublin, up until very recently, you were invited to fill out a form at a table with shared biros on strings and people standing together and huddling around, then handing these over to officials in the airport who didn't seem particularly interested in them. And we know from the Phil Hogan thing, among other things, that there's not much follow-up on those kinds of journeys as well. Um, I'm worried about all this. Well, let's do our best to reassure you if we can, uh, Hugh. Um, To go back to Jennifer's point, there is certainly a problem um, with communication in government and frequently it's been a shambles and we've seen that at the coalface obviously uh, in our work but I think the wider public gets that as well. However when governments are criticised for poor communications often from within it, it usually in my experience masks not just a communications problem but a problem with the delivery of substantial services, initiatives and uh, and so forth. In other words, when governments say, oh, we have a, we're doing a fine job, but we just have a difficulty explaining that to the public, uh, it's a communications problem. It nearly always isn't just a communications problem. It's a it's a problem of uh, of substance. And I think we're seeing some elements of that here, uh, as you outline with the testing and tracing, though to some extent we will, I think, see a plan for that when the medium term plan is published, I guess, uh, in the next few weeks. But the government needs to get on with that. We're through the early phase of COVID now. We're into the living with the disease uh, phase and we don't as yet have a plan for managing that. The previous plan on the reopening from the lockdown, that has run out effectively. The country is reopened to a certain extent and it's the plan for the next phase of reopening and then maybe closing down bits and pieces, as we've seen. We don't as yet have a strategic framework uh, published by the government that demonstrates to us what things look like in two months' time, in three months' time, six months' time, uh, or what their view of uh, of that is. So that is, as I say, a problem of substance, not just a problem of communications. And it may very well be when that plan is worked out and when it's ready that we will see those communications problems manifest themselves at that point. But it's a bigger thing to get the actual plan together, to get the testing and tracing infrastructure up and running, um, which we, we haven't seen in sufficient, uh, with sufficient facility to date. That having been said, I think uh, there are some bright spots uh, for the government. So the schools are back. Parents all over the country were terrified over the summer that this thing wasn't going to get off the ground. The schools are back. Now, the inevitable outbreaks in schools will have to be managed 
uh, you know, quickly and cleverly by the health authorities and the government will have to explain to people what's going on with those. But the schools are back. There is a framework for the Leaving Cert results, which was elaborated on yesterday by the Minister for Education, which has uh, gained broad acceptance now. The results aren't out yet, but the uh, the plan for them and uh, the mechanism that has been put in place to judge uh, leaving cert results of students has been broadly uh, has been broadly welcomed. And I think that if the government gets those things right, and if it can demonstrate that it has, as I said earlier, this common purpose, and that is producing these results that people where people may say, well look, at least they got the schools back, at least they could manage that, the Leaving Cert results went okay, then I think there is a chance that the government can progress to the, the longer-term COVID plan, the budget, the, uh, the plan for economic recovery that will, appoint, that will um, accompany the budget. Then I think there's a chance that they can get those off the ground. But looking at their operations up until now, not just communication, but in the formulation of policies and plans, you have to say there's no guarantee of it. What do you think of that, Harry? I broadly uh, agree. I, I think the um, the Social Democrats are at two o'clock today, and I think one of the net things that they're saying, I think they are making a valid point, is that the government's plan is is very short term in relation to COVID nineteen, and that when you are talking uh, about the medium term, that they really haven't set a pathway. Uh, Jennifer reported uh, last month, I think, on the change in terms of the way that COVID-19 would be dealt with uh, by government uh, uh, moving away from a temporal uh, pathway uh, to one in which uh, uh, the government uh, agencies uh, and the, the departments would be able to deal uh, with different types of situation as they uh, arose. And as uh, Jennifer reported uh, they had every colour in the rainbow except uh, for the colour green, uh, which is uh, green uh, for go. I, I actually think that that particular plan is, is quite difficult to get your head around. I don't think people have the same uh, ownership of that plan as they had uh, uh, with the last one. And I think one of the things that the Social Democrats are saying today, and I think it's a fair point, is that, that a, a, a thought-out, articulated plan to deal with the medium term uh, COVID implications is necessary. And I just return to the point that I was making uh, at the start in relation to the programme uh, uh, for government, Hugh. Um, it's huge. And, uh, you know, a lot of the action, especially in relation to climate change, uh, needs to be uh, implemented sooner uh, rather uh, than later. And uh, we will wait to see uh, what uh, Government Chief Whip Jack Chambers unveils in his legislative programme. But the government really needs to begin work on that as well. I mean, I know that COVID-19 is dominating the national discourse as it should, but there is other business of government that needs to be uh, attended to uh, as well. And uh, as we saw this week, I mean, they're trying to uh, reintroduce some semblance of normality of a society functioning as normally as possible. And part of that is that the more uh, mundane and pedestrian uh, cogs of government begin to operate uh, again. And there hasn't been any strong um, uh, evidence of that. It just seems that everything has been uh, put into uh, suspension or abeyance uh, while the government uh, awaits action in relation uh, to uh, COVID-19. And there's a very famous um, 
saying from the American Civil War, uh, which said, you know, the army that wins is the army that gets there fastest with the mostest. And that should really be uh, the rallying cry for every political party, not only during an election campaign, but also when in, in government, that, you know, there, 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 there is no time uh, to relax, that you have to be able to, to deal with all the situations that arise, all eventualities across the full spectrum and plethora of uh, of issues. And I, I, I think that's something that the government hasn't been able to, to do uh, since. And I'll just return to the, the point that Pat was making earlier on about the lack of coherence uh, in in the government. I mean, it has been incredibly inept in the first 66 days. And, uh, you know, uh, I was talking to Pat about this yesterday and, and he was saying, it's you know, the government can't but survive. It can't but succeed because of the scale of the crisis that we have at the moment. But the evidence that it presents to us on a daily basis points to everything but that. You know, the government has just struggled so badly uh, in its first two months of existence that you do worry uh, about uh, its, uh, if it survives or not. Uh, two of the parties, there are uh, massive problems internally with them. in them. The Greens have, uh, you know, at least three of its TDs uh, who are semi-detached at the very kindest in relation uh, to this government. There's a just transition ginger group uh, which is intent on taking the Greens out of government. Uh, Fianna Fáil has a huge number of internal issues that it has to work through as well and hasn't even begun to start uh, to work through those as yet. And Fine Gael is doing OK at the moment, but I'm sure that Fine Gael is going to face a couple of road bumps in the next couple of weeks and months uh, as well. So uh, as Pat was saying, there is a need for this government to present itself as a government and uh, not a kind of a loose a heterogeneous uh, a collection of three very separate parties who happen to be in the same room, uh, uh, all with one hand on the steering wheel, but not quite sure in which ship uh, the particular, which direction this particular ship is going. Given all that, Jen, does it make sense to release Simon Coveney from his bondage in this unhappy government and send him off to Brussels and then not only create a vacancy in a in a vital position in the run-up to um, the ending of the interim period, the full departure of Britain from the UK at the end of this year, plus he's one of the most experienced ministers, plus he's been in that post for a long time, he represents continuity, presumably there's some form of mini reshuffle would have to take place as a result of that. Is he not better off staying where he is? Perhaps, and I actually think that this is probably the biggest reason why we haven't had full clarity on what's happening with that post yet. And it's around Simon Coveney and around the decision that he has to make um, about his future. So you could make that argument that he's sort of more useful back here at home, that he, in his position as foreign affairs minister, uh, has a, a, a very strong grasp on the, on the Brexit brief, knows all of the key players, knows exactly what's at stake, especially at this crucial time. We're only weeks away from the end of the year. And I think that is definitely a very strong argument, perhaps for him staying. The argument for him going could have been that if we could retain that key trade portfolio, that he could potentially have an even bigger clout there. But of course, we don't know. And there is no clarity uh, about whether we do retain that trade portfolio. So if we take, for example, that we don't and that we get perhaps a portfolio of lesser import, would he go? Would it be worth his while going? Would he want to go? Would it make sense for him personally? Would it make sense for him politically? And I think that that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks to, and one of the reasons why we don't actually have an answer about who our nominees are, because it seems to me what's happening is that he would put his name forward, let his name be put forward if he felt that there was 
if not the trade portfolio, a portfolio of equal import. And that's just not a given. Um, and on the flip side, Ursula von der Leyen has clearly said she wants a male and a female nominee. Um, so if you run Simon Coveney alongside someone like Mairead McGuinness, who's in the mix, uh, it would appear that Ursula von der Leyen looks very favourably upon Mairead McGuinness. Could that, would that result in Simon Coveney effectively being left red-faced? Even though I personally don't think it would be an embarrassment at all, but a lot of people think it would be a political embarrassment. Um, you know, so there's all of these, there's all of these issues uh, at play at the moment. And I don't see personally the European Commission telling the Irish government, here's what portfolio you will have. And them making a decision on that basis. I think Simon Coveney might have to make a leap of faith. Pat? I think that's exactly right. And Naomi reports uh, this, Naomi Leary, our Europe correspondent, reports this in this morning's paper, that the allocation of portfolio will depend on the person who is nominated. So if the Irish government nominates uh, two people for the position, they will then be you could call it a job interview or will certainly be conversations uh, with Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who will then indicate to the Irish government who her preferred nominee is and uh, at that point undertake a reshuffle if necessary of of the portfolios. I'm hearing very strongly from from Brussels that uh, it's very unlikely that trade will be retained by the new Irish commissioner. And I think that is more or less accepted in Dublin at uh, at this stage. As Jen says, the, uh, the, the danger for Simon Coveney, if he allows his name to go forward, is that he either doesn't get the job because uh, Ursula von der Leyen wants to pick the woman who is um, nominated alongside him or who's suggested alongside him, or he does get the job and it would be quite a rebuff, I think, from the European Commission to turn down the nomination or the, the offered nomination of, you know, former Deputy Prime Minister, current Minister for Foreign Affairs, Deputy Leader of his party. That would be quite a rebuff to turn him down uh, uh, in favour of, uh, of of a serving MEP. But it, it, even if he was accepted that he would get a at best, a mid-ranking, um, a mid-ranking portfolio, and at worst, uh, a, a, at worst, a portfolio that has little impact either in Brussels or uh, in Ireland. Um, so I, I don't think that Simon Coveney will get absolute clarity from Brussels on what portfolio he might get, or even if he would get the job. So um, uh, ultimately, he will he he will have to either take that gamble. Are, are declined to take it. And just to pursue one further point on that, Pat, uh, it is the case, isn't it, that um, should the government survive to that point, Fianna Fáil have the right to nominate the next commissioner, which is about three, two years or tad over three years away, uh, might be before the next election. So in terms of his sort of long-term plan, Simon Coveney, who's somebody who's in this political prime in a very senior position here, um, is it not a slightly odd choice to make? Well, this is... You know, I mean, European, the job of European commissioner is something that has, you know, always been sought after by politicians in all countries for lots of reasons. You're at the very epicentre of power in uh, in the European Union. And of course, it 
opens up all sorts of career possibilities uh, for people who have served in the commission and go on to various advisory roles and so forth. But you're right, it would be, um, it, it, it would amount to Simon Coveney. And there's nothing to say that he could not come back to Irish politics, though that tends to be not what happens. Um, and it would look like, at least on the face of it, giving up his political career in his there he is in his late 40s, deputy leader of his party, defeated for the leadership of his party a couple of years ago. But certainly the general consensus around Fine Gael and around Leinster House would, they, would be that Simon Coveney's leadership ambitions have not entirely been extinguished. So, yeah, he would be giving up uh, an awful lot. It would be a change for him and presumably his uh, his family who might have to move to Brussels. He would be for a uh, a time anyway, and probably for good, giving up uh, Irish politics. So yeah, it's it's a really big choice for him to make. I would say one other thing is that it would also, I think, represent, uh, a, a, you know, a serious deterioration or serious degrading of Fina Gale's, um, you know, political clout. Simon Coveney is uh, is somebody who is not just well regarded within his own organisation as the result of the Fine Gael election, uh, leadership election showed when he, he won the vote amongst the party membership. Um, but I think he's somebody who uh, enjoys a high degree of credibility amongst uh, amongst ordinary voters because of his uh, his handling of Brexit. So to take that out, and if you cast your mind back to the general election campaign, when about halfway through it, we suddenly saw Simon Coveney dragged into uh, daily press conferences and, uh, and so forth to give the Fine Gael campaign a boost. So to take that out of the Fine Gael political operation, I think would represent um, a, a significant diminishing of, uh, of Fine Gael's uh, Fine Gael's political, uh, you know, political punch. But um, I suppose that's the uh, that's the choice that 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 he must now make. And really, we thought we'd get an answer on this on Monday. We thought we'd get it yesterday. It's really hard to see it going beyond today. I think. A last quick question um, to you, Harry. This doll is reconvening today in the convention centre. Why are they still down there? Can they not order their business in such a way? Do they not have the wit? to organise things so that you have um, uh, a number of people in the chamber at any given time, which is within the which is within the permitted regulations, order people coming in and out, um, some form of remote voting. It doesn't seem that difficult. I mean, from what I gather, um, you can tell me it, it's incredibly awkward for both for the politicians, probably for, for, for you guys as well, though that obviously isn't isn't very important at all. I mean, can they not just come back to Leinster House where they should be? Yeah, it's, it's a very expensive place to have a kip. Uh, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, the, it, I, I think the decision to stay in the uh, National Convention Centre is preposterous, Hugh, to be quite uh, frank. You have children being crowded into classrooms uh, around the, the country in, in, and, and, and schools effectively managing that by putting them into discrete uh, bubbles. But the, the absolutely astronomical cost of running the whole show in the National Convention Centre. And on top of everything else, they put in a very expensive sound system uh, at a cost that I think approached or even exceeded six figures uh, in in July uh, for something that, that will be a, a temporary fix. And the taxi meter continues 
uh, to turn over in relation to that. And somebody somewhere is going to have to take a decision very soon to return it to the Dáil and to implement the protocols that you outlined there in your questions. You know, I mean, the only time that you ever get the chamber packed to the gills uh, is on budget day. And the only de- the time really uh, that you get massive uh, numbers uh, in, in, in the Dáil is uh, when leaders' questions are on or, or when there is a, a vote. And all of those can be managed uh, in the way that the rest of society has ordered its business uh, so as to cope uh, with COVID-19. And the time uh, for the um, Doyle and the Shannon to return their natural homes has, has long since passed. I mean, we shouldn't be going into the autumn and into the winter uh, with uh, TDs uh, making that trip across the Liffey to the National Convention uh, Centre um, uh, to, to adhere to protocols that, as far as I can see, uh, have not been required in any uh, other uh, facet uh, of Irish uh, life. So I, th- I think it's ludicrous and I, I think it should stop and it should stop now. OK, we'll start that movement right here, right now. We'll leave it there for um, for today. Thanks very much to Harry there, to Jennifer and to Pat for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon, who was on the desk. Don't forget, if you have not already done so, to proceed forthwith to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for unlimited access to the Irish Times at the introductory price of one euro for the very first month. And also, you know, if you want to get in touch with us, we are always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thank you very much indeed for listening.